Welcome to Broadway World, Sound Like It Pop Podcast. I am Matt Tim, and any Broadway World senior TV and film critic. And as always, I am joined by the brains of our operation, Broadway World TV's Los Angeles Bureau Chief and resident Latter-day Saint, Jennifer McHugh. Jen, hello. Hello. Uh, you can follow Jen on Twitter at EpineQ, that's E-P-O-N-I-N-E-Q, and you can follow me at B-W-W-M-A-T-T. You can read both of us across various Broadway World sites, and you can now follow Sound Like It Pop on Twitter at S-L-I-P Podcast. Not only can you find all episodes of Sound Like It Pop on BroadwayWorld.com, but you can also get new episodes downloaded automatically via iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. So if you don't hate us, rate and review the show so we have something to hang our hats on and be proud of since nothing else in our lives matter. On this episode, we're going to talk about four of the best movies that we've seen all summer. We're also going to revisit a bet that Jen and I made about the Academy Awards and the subsequent binge-watching that followed. And per the use, we will close the episode with a little show and tell. But first, Jen, I did want to mention, I mentioned it at the top, you have been uh, visiting the Book of Mormon tour once or twice recently. What was it? Three times. How recently in three times? was June 7th, uh, June 26th, and June 30th. Okay, so A, why that often? And B, how was the tour? Because it's coming down here to Orlando this season. Uh, again, after being here a couple years ago. So uh, is the tour still in good shape? The tour is in great shape. The cast is delightful. Elder McKinley, who's always been my favorite, is just the most wonderful, adorable little gay boy. I want to hug and kiss all day long. <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to clarify that when you said I was <laughs> the resident Latter-day Saint, that was in yeah. the Broadway sense, not the religious yes, sense. exactly, exactly. Um, but yeah, the tour was adorable. Um, it gets better every time I see it because... You just pick up on a thousand things. I mean, the first time I saw it, I think I, I told you that I physically blacked out during Hasadiga Ibawai. <laughs> so the second time, it was like a refresher. And then the third time, I was like, oh, I never noticed that before. And then the fourth time, you're like, oh, my God, this is so good. <laughs> so yeah. I know it was a little overkill, but it just happened to be like sequential birthdays um, and people visiting. And I'm like, oh, let's go see this. Oh, let's go see this. So it happened, and I don't regret it for a second. No, so I think absolutely. you'll you'll uh, love the tour. I think yeah. um, you know it's just nice to see young. I don't know. I get emotional when I see like little twenty year old boys up there, you know, living out their dream and having the time of their lives. So, not necessarily just boys, but just you know, kids that yeah. could be my kids at this point. But it's just so cute, and they were having such a good time. Oh my god, um, I think you're gonna like it. Yeah, I saw the original Broadway cast just like uh, like two weeks after it opened all the way back in whenever that was, 2011 or 2012. Then I saw the tour when it was here in Orlando a couple years ago. And now this is kind of like a return tour. It seems like they're going to a lot of different places that they've been recently. I'm very much looking forward to that. And also on the Book of Mormon thing, before we get into our main topics, I did just recently listen to a Nerdist podcast episode with Trey Parker. And that guy is just so smart and so fascinating. It's a really, really good listen. If you don't listen to the Nerdist podcast, we'll throw that in the show notes. Uh, But it's a really good listen. I will say uh, there's a lot of gaming talk because their South Park game is about to come out. But Trey himself is such a fascinating dude and his attitude towards Hollywood and everything else. Like he expects to be his career to be over any day now. So he's fearless (laughs) is just inspiring. Yeah. If more Hollywood content creators would bring the philosophy that he and his partner, Matt Stone uh, from South Park have brought to their entire careers, I think that the arts in general would be a much better place and a much more fulfilling place for creators and viewers i wish more people had as he said in the show had his fishing poles in his trunk all the time ready to leave whenever something bad happened that was my favorite line in the world hello my name is elder price 
and I would like to share with you the most amazing book. Hello, my name is Elder Grant. It's a book about America a long, long time ago. It has so many awesome parts. You simply won't believe how much this book can change your life. Hello, my name is Elder Green. I would like to share with you this book of Jesus Christ. Hello. All right, Jen. We are going to dive in since this is midsummer now. We are in the height of the summer movie season. And there have kind of been, I think this is fair to say, four big movies that have separated themselves from the pack in terms of the releases since the beginning of June. We've already talked about how much we both love Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Since then, there's been four movies that have kind of gotten a lot of both the box office and or critical attention. And Jen, this is weird because very rarely do both of us see the same groups of things, but we have both seen all four of these movies. Those movies in no particular order are Wonder Woman, Baby Driver, Spider-Man Homecoming, and The Big Sick. So we have both seen all of these. In your case, you've seen a couple of them multiple times. So we're going to get into all of these because I, I we really haven't talked much about it. We've briefly discussed Wonder Woman and The Big Sick, but not in a lot of detail. So I'm interested to hear what you think on these. But let's start with Wonder Woman because that is the the oldest one, the one that was released first, it was released back on June 2nd. So, Jen, we know that I kind of love the superhero stuff probably a little more than, than you do. But I think you were excited about this one just as much as I normally am. Was that because of the the female superhero protagonist or was it something about the director, Patty Jenkins? What was it about this one that got you excited? Yeah, I think it's it's the girl thing, but also, um, you know, everybody keeps rooting for a win for DC, Ooh, and I th- everybody it. thought this was, you know, their best shot at redemption, and thankfully it paid off um, because girls rule the world. So, <laughs> and it was just, I, I really like Gal Gadot. Like she's just dynamic and charming and sweet and and beautiful and wonderful and talented and everything that you want to hate, but she's just lovely. And she is a former member of the Israeli Armed Forces, so she could probably kick your ass for real, not just on screen. So you alluded to it. You liked Wonder Woman. So tell me what your thoughts were in general about, really, in my opinion, the first good DC movie since the Christopher Nolan Batman series ended. Well, I was a big fan of, and I know I'm not going to pronounce this right, so I need your nerddom to help me. Thank you. Themyscira? Themyscira? Themyscira, yeah. Thank you. The uh, Amazonian island where she's from. I thought one of the most interesting things, uh, filmmaking choices, was Gal Gadot, as you mentioned, was, is, well, is Israeli. So she has a bit of an accent when she speaks English. Now, instead of asking her to get rid of her accent and do a stupid American accent like so many, or British accent like so many movies do, they made the uh, women of Themyscira have her accent. And I just thought that was a beautiful choice. I thought it was lovely. And they all did a really good job. Um, also, Robin Wright is a real life superhero. Holy She's crap. crazy, crazy good. And um, she was probably one of my favorite parts of the movie. I think the World War One battle scene was probably my favorite part. And I think the only thing that didn't hit for me was the ending I thought was a little mm. bit drawn out. But overall, I thought it was a great job. And let's face it, the DC DC bar was pretty low. So (laughs) even if they had done a halfway decent job, we're like, okay, good job, you guys. 
Yeah. Well, and what I think was really interesting about, you know, you mentioned kind of the accent work in Themyscira. The other thing about that is, is that in a world where only women occupy this island, it was really interesting to see the different, I mean, colors of women, the different sizes of women, the different shapes of women, the different ages of women. Now, there is something to be said that she is the only one that was of a certain generation that plays into the plot that we don't want to spoil too, too much. But I think the fact that Patty Jenkins, who was the director of this film, kind of approached it from the very appropriate, more feminist angle, really showed not necessarily in anything that was super hit you over the head obvious, but really clever, important, subtle ways, both in terms of representation and in some of the decisions that they made. You mentioned some of the scenes that you loved. What I really loved was the battle scene on Themyscira when the Germans came and the Amazonians just beat the living crap out of them. It was really cool to kind of see these women. They weren't supposed to just be, oh, they're, you know, fairly scantily clad, attractive, athletic women. They were kick-ass women, and I loved that. And I loved seeing kind of the camaraderie that they had. That was probably one of my favorite scenes. And you're right, though, that that whole island thing was gorgeous. So I really loved that. And, you know, I, I think one other thing that kind of played in with that is that I kind of really loved the fact that Chris Pine's character, Steve Trevor, really kind of assumed some of the roles that superhero girlfriends often have, where they kind of do things that end up getting them in trouble that the superhero has to come in and save them from. So I thought that was really neat. Obviously, Steve Trevor is a character from the comic book, so he has a long history with Wonder Woman. But I did kind of like that they steered into flipping the gender stereotypes that we often see in superhero movies. So I, I really, really enjoyed that. I also really liked Dr. Poison. The fact that even though she didn't turn out to be like the biggest villain in the film, it was just such a really creepy way of having a strong female antagonist in there as well. So I loved it. I, you know, like I said, I think it's getting a, probably a little more credit because a it's DC and because I think people were really rooting for a strong female superhero movie to do well. So I think it's probably getting a little more credit from people, myself included, than it would have if it was kind of flipped in a normal situation. But I don't have a problem with that. I think it should because it is needing to break through that glass ceiling that so many really bad superhero movies have set up for female superheroes. And I think it's shattered through it. And I hope, obviously, we're going to get sequels to this because of how well it did at the box office. But I hope this also leads to getting many, many other female-led superhero movies. Jen, let me see if you agree with me here. I, my brother and I went and saw this. And I, I said when we were leaving, I said, I think the reason that I liked this, even though it might not have been, I didn't love it as much as like Deadpool or something. It didn't really change the mold too much. But one reason that I really liked it is because there are a lot of male superhero movies. And even though they all have new bad guys and new alien technology and new this and new that, they're really pretty similar from one to the other. It's a lot of the same stories. And w whether it's Iron Man or Batman or the Incredible Hulk, you have fairly consistent archetypal male superhero figures. So even if the story in Wonder Woman is fairly familiar, having it from a woman's perspective really just adds whole new levels that raise the bar a little bit from something that would have been okay if it was a dude in the, in the lead role to something that was really kind of revolutionary just on the fact that we're seeing it from a female perspective. Well, I think 
I mean, it reminded me a lot of the first Captain America. I thought it was basically the same kind of storyline, but it it is definitely a different story because it's, it's kind of like seeing uh, the same situation put in the hands of a woman versus how a man would handle it. And I'm not, you know, taking gender sides, even though the battle is clear. Oh no, let's, um... let's be honest. I think (laughs) the news of the day makes it very clear that things would be much better if women were in charge rather than men. Yeah, that's hard to argue in this moment in time, but it 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 is it just offers a different perspective. And I never knew that. I mean, I don't follow comics barely at all, but I never knew Woman, Wonder Woman was immortal, which was mm-hmm. made clear. And also, you know, to choose the World War One background, like World War Two is a popular setting, but World War One was messed up yeah. with all the gases and everything that they touched on and experimenting with humans and death and everything and for her to just see that human side of it and not be willing to surrender at any cost. I just, I wonder, you know, if a male was in that role and that, and we saw Steve Trevor in the same trench in World War One, like we, we can't think about the humanity right now. And she's like, no way, like we're doing this. So that was just an interesting, like you said, like it's a great perspective to see it from a woman's point of view. Well, and I think what Patty Jenkins did in this film was really, really specific and really pronounced. She I, I I hate to use you know the the term leaning in since that has been almost cliched to adopting feminist perspectives, but I really I, I think that's exactly what you have to say. She leaned into the fact that Wonder Woman is a superhero that from the very beginning of her time in the comics up until now, which is obviously the height of her big screen presence has been about love and understanding and compassion. And I think that's a really good perspective, not just because Captain America was also originally in a world war and was kind of a fish out of water for a lot of reasons, but he's probably the Marvel equivalent that we've seen in the MCU so far to where he's kind of got this altruistic point of view. But Patty Jenkins and Gal Gadot and everybody else with Wonder Woman really just said, this is our perspective. This is our character. You don't see this in many superhero movies. And that's a good thing that we're able to now bring that forward. That if Tony Stark had said, no, we have to, we can't leave anybody behind. We, ha- we can't sacrifice humanity. It wouldn't ring as true as it does with a really strong Wonder Woman. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, let's move on from that superhero movie to another superhero movie. This is the... I mean, the third reboot of the Spider-Man franchise in the past, what, Jen, 20 years. But what's different about this is this is the first time that it is being incorporated into the larger Marvel Cinematic Universe. We, of course, saw Tom Holland's Spider-Man in Captain America Civil War last year. And one of the best things about Spider-Man Homecoming was seeing seeing those uh, Civil War battles from his perspective. Really, really funny. Uh, But this is a movie that has... A lot of expectations coming into it because the Spider-Man property is so valuable to Marvel and to Sony that this partnership between the two to allow him to appear in Marvel movies and to allow characters like Tony Stark and Happy and Pepper Potts to appear in the Spider-Man movies, it was a big deal. So this is now out. We're recording on, on July 9th. It is only a couple days after the movie was released. I don't think we have to worry about whether or not it's going to make a ton of money. Um, But I think if this does well, both from a critical and a financial standpoint, maybe we'll see some more crossovers between the characters from the respective camps. But Jen, I've got to say that I was entertained by the film, 
but not especially so. I, I mean, it was fine. I enjoyed it. There were some things that I really, really enjoyed and some things that I thought were, hey, I kind of wish Tobey Maguire was doing this instead. Oh, no, I couldn't disagree with you more. I think he's the best Spider-Man we've ever seen. And it was so nice to have someone as Spider-Man who actually was believable as an awkward high school kid. Yeah. And his friends are the greatest part of the movie. Correct. His best friend, Ned, steals yes. it. Zendaya, where'd awesome. she come from, was delightful. Mm-hmm. And even his little, like, rival. You know, it looked like a high school so in Queens. Good. It wasn't some whitewashed Lena Dunham version of Queens, you know, that wasn't believable like it looked like awkward teenagers and queens there were band geeks there were chess geeks there was you know popular kids there were rich guys it was just the setting itself i i was so happy with and michael keaton needs to be a bad guy more and more well he just needs to be in every movie because no matter what he does he's always good yeah i was i'm agreeing with you 100 percent on his friends and michael keaton because those to me were the best parts of the movie. And we'll get to Tom Holland in a second, because that's obviously the main focus of the attention here. But completely agree that the the other high school kids were fantastic. What I really liked about it, too, Jen, is that <laughs> they looked like nerds. You know, they're at this really prestigious science and engineering high school or whatever. And, you know, there are some attractive people there, but they were all dorky in their own right. They didn't try to make this like a mean girls thing. They were a bunch of nerds of various ethnic backgrounds. And I really, really appreciated that. Um, his best friend. Ned, nerds, and even, even the, um, you know, the guy who was kind of like the popular guy who was like his nemesis <laughs> and any other high school, he would have been a nerd that got pushed absolutely. into lockers. Just happens to be at a nerdy high school where he's the cool guy. Yeah. And that character in the comic books, is normally white. So the fact that we got him as an Indian actor who was, he was the, one of the leads in, um, oh, what the heck is that movie called? The uh, Hotel Wes Anderson movie. Um, Grand Budapest Hotel. Yeah. The Grand Budapest Hotel. So we got to see a lot of different shades of colors from these high school students, which you don't often see in superhero movies. So that was awesome. Um, I thought Zendaya stole it. And obviously, I don't know, maybe we should put a little bit of a spoiler warning on here, considering there's been a quite a big dust-up about her character. Um, so if you don't want to know any spoilers about Zendaya's character moving forward, you know, fast forward. But I love the fact that she is being positioned as the love interest moving forward in future films. Uh, we can get back to that, too. Michael Keaton is great. But, Jen, you loved Tom Holland, and I really, really liked him a lot in Civil War. I thought he was great. My only complaint about him in Homecoming is is that I thought the dorky, awkward nerdiness played great. I thought the humor played great. I just felt like they left a lot on the table in terms of the evolution of that as the film went on. It just felt like we were getting the same notes played from beginning to end without seeing a whole lot of of different shades that he presented. I really had no problem with the fact that they didn't do the whole Uncle Ben, you know, great responsibility whole tagline. So I'm totally fine with that. It just felt like I wanted to see a little bit more of a character arc from Peter Parker throughout this film. Nope, completely disagree. <laughs> thought he was that wonderful. Was fine. And I, I think that that is um, a positive aspect to his character. I love that he was bad at being a superhero. I love that he didn't get instantly better in two and a half hours. 
you know, he started to figure a few things out, but he has a long way to go. And even he realizes that at the end of the film when he's off. Well, I don't want to spoil it, but he makes the decision that he has a lot of time to grow and he's going to figure that out on his own. So I thought that that completely worked in his favor. Yeah. And I'm not saying that he should have gone from nerdy, dorky Spider-Man to being like super badass Spider-Man. I just meant that at some point I thought the all shucksness wore thin as things got more serious. And that's all I meant. I don't, I didn't want him to change the, you know, the essence of the character. I just felt like they were coasting on that for a lot of the goodwill. If, if other people didn't, that's totally fine. It's just for me. I was like, okay, we, we don't need the all shucks jokes anymore. We can move on. Jen, are you familiar with what I was referencing with Zendaya's character? Is that a controversy that you've kept up on? Yes. Okay, so basically what it is, again, spoiler alert, Zendaya plays a character named Michelle. She's kind of just a really schlubby, super smart, disheveled character, really sarcastic, you know, not specifically friends with Peter Parker. They're on the Academic Bowl team together, and they get a little bit closer throughout the film, but that's nothing romantic going on throughout that he has his eyes set on another member of the Academic Bowl team. But then at the end, When she assumes the role as the captain of the academic team, they say, all right, Michelle's in charge. And she says, well, actually, you know, my friends call me MJ. Anybody who knows either A, the history of Spider-Man and his love interests, or saw the original Tommy Maguire, Kirsten Dunst movies, MJ in the Spider-Man universe, or the Spider-Verse, as they call it, is often short for Mary Jane. Mary Jane Watson is Spider-Man's high school crush turned into girlfriend, turned into eventually his wife. They have been very clear that Michelle Jones is the character's name. She is not Mary Jane Watson, but for all intents and purposes, she is. And I think, Jen, that I'm a little uncomfortable with how they rolled this out. One, I'm all for surprises. Like, I thought there was another surprise in this film that was so brilliant. I didn't see coming until literally three seconds before it happened. Um, I did not see this one coming. It never crossed my mind because I didn't really read up on this until after the fact, because I saw it before the 4th of July because of the holiday screenings. But I love the fact that they decided to take in this world that is very much New York, like you said, it is very true to what New York is actually like, that they went with this normally pale, redheaded character and turned her into somebody who's black. I love that. But I don't love the fact that they really kind of hid that, changed her name, didn't talk about it. Like, I'm a little uncomfortable with how they avoided talking about that almost just to appease fanboys and hide it until after people saw the movie. Oh, I loved it. I loved that they just messed with fanboys and they proved that at the very end tag, which I'm not going to spoil because it was brilliant. <laughs> but I almost feel at this point that the fanboys deserve this shit because uh, I thought that rollout and it was just a casual little mention at the end was it was just so great because that wasn't the focus of the movie. It might be the focus of the next one, but that wasn't what this movie was about. So it was just like, oh, by the way, this is going to happen. And that was great. I yeah. loved it. <laughs> no, I'm very glad that they did it and did it that way. I just hope that there wasn't a cover your ass financial motivation for not revealing it ahead of time. Does that make sense? Like, I hope they weren't like saying, hey, we're going to make this character black. but We're just not going to tell you just in case you might boycott the movie. I don't know if that's what it is. I just hope that if they did decide not to make that public ahead of time, it was for the surprise reasons that you mentioned, because I thought she was fantastic. And I'm really, really excited to see where this goes in the future. I wanted to send a few more shout outs at a few things I loved. 
John Favreau. Delicious. So good. So good. Happy's such a great character. Uh, so good. Also, the little Asian kid in the bathroom at the end may have been my favorite moment of the entire movie. I refresh my memory. I don't remember. Oh, John oh, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Oh, my gotcha. God. It was such a throwaway moment that I, I laughed ridiculously hard at it. And that yeah. kid was the cutest thing. And his look on his face was everything. So Very cool. I think those are all great. Jen, we're moving away from official superhero movies. We're going to move into another one that does have a lot in common with superhero movies, um, especially maybe even Guardians of the Galaxy for some reasons. But we're going to talk about Edgar Wright's Baby Driver. This is a movie where it is not a superhero movie, but the main character, Baby, played by Ansel Elgort, does have some superhuman <laughs> abilities a little bit. It also has a fantastic soundtrack, much like Guardians of the Galaxy. Jen, I'm going to let you talk about this one first. Like anybody with decent taste, you are a fan of Edgar Wright. So what did you think of Baby Driver? Well, I was looking forward to this a lot because Edgar Wright's one of my favorites. And I, I just thought it was a good time. I mean, to me, it's just a giant music video. Um, I think everything in the movie is choreographed to the soundtrack, which we haven't really seen in a long time. Baby Driver soundtrack is at number one on the charts. Like, when was the last time that happened really? for a motion picture? Wow. But, um, so Edgar's really into music, and I appreciate that it was it was kind of, ugh, I hate being cliche, but it sounded like, like the soundtrack was the star of the movie. And, you know, now it's starting to get all this little snarky hate online because, you know, anytime anything gets popular, we have to start hating it to be edgy. <laughs> but I think people are also going into it with the thought that it's a heist movie, but it's really just about, like, a music video. And it's about these characters. Now, did you think the dialogue, there's some dialogue that's really super cheesy. And I didn't know if that was intentional because they're kind of parodying a heist flick genre. Mm -hmm. Or what did you think? I think that Edgar Wright is such a brilliant writer in terms of dialogue, which we've seen from you know his previous films, Shaun of the Dead, um, The World's End, that I have to think that with those cheesy lines, especially some of the stuff that Jamie Foxx said and Kevin Spacey said, like, you have to think that that was done for kind of the pastiche purpose of this film. So I think I think that was a very conscious decision. Yeah, that was my instinct, because, you know, there are some stereotypical characters. I mean, I love seeing John Hamm as a bad guy because I don't think his talents are used. You know, he's, you know, one of those people who has the problem that we're all so used to where we're so good looking that sometimes we're typecast <laughs> as the male leads or the ingenues. I mean, you and I both know how difficult that is. Absolutely. To overcome. It's hard. It's a hard knock life. It's nice to see him as this like scruffy bad guy who's just not a nice dude. No, um, I also really enjoyed Flea. Yeah, that was such a random <laughs> Flea was cameo, in it for like it? two minutes and he just, I don't know, he just amused the crap out of me. <laughs> well, Flea's nothing if not uh, entertaining. But Jen, for me, I also love Edgar Wright. I, I think I was so disappointed when he didn't end up finishing Ant-Man and ended up moving on from that, even though I still loved Ant-Man. I was really excited to see his take on a superhero film. Um, I, I I kind of feel like I didn't enjoy this movie as much as I wanted to because of Rotten Tomatoes. And the reason is, is that for a long time, and I don't even know if it still is, but for a long time, Baby Driver had a 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. So when I see that, one, I've always got issues with Rotten Tomatoes because it's owned by Fandango. So they want you to buy movie tickets. So I know that. But when you see something that's 100%, you're like, oh, 
this is probably really good. So I think I expected it to be a little bit more genre busting than it was. I was expecting something more in the lines of Pulp Fiction. So I don't think that I enjoyed it as much as I would have if I had gone into it just blank. But I still really loved it. I mean, I, I thought the performances were fantastic in these really goofy characters. I think Ansel was probably the weak link as far as I was concerned. I thought Kevin Spacey was really interesting, even though his character makes really no sense throughout the, the arc of the film. I thought all of the you know other bad guys in it were great. I thought Lily James was really good, too. She's just there's just something very um, charismatic about her. She doesn't really have much of a character at all. But when she's on screen, you just feel like, oh, that's nice. You know, her character is nice. She's warm. She's smiley. Like, I like her. So I think the movie was really good overall. I just, I think that the expectations that I had going in weren't exactly met. And I don't think that's the film's fault. I don't think so either. Cause it was really, an, I think it was just brainless fun after everything. And like, we keep saying everything that's going on in the world. Like anytime we can shut our brains off for two hours is a great yeah. day. Uh, two other performances. I just have to shout out was Paul Williams cameo. Hello. And the guy that played his foster dad, Joe, it's a guy named CJ Jones was heartbreaking and he's a real deaf American actor. And he was just, Oh my God, the expression in in his eyes, the entire film was just, it tore your heart out. So those were my favorite performances. Yeah. I think the casting was really good, which is something you expect. We haven't talked Jen about the thing that really is at the heart of this film. Um, We talked about the music. The other thing at the heart of the film is the driving. I thought that the stunts, the driving, you know, for that matter, the kind of the parkour running through downtown Atlanta was really, really good. I mean, I'm not necessarily I've never seen really any of the Fast and Furious movies. Car chase movies are not necessarily my thing, but this was so cool. I loved the, you know, the chase scenes in this, the the getaway scenes. My heart was pumping. I really, really enjoyed it. That's not something that normally gets me excited about a film, but it did in this case. I think the opening car chase was one of the best scenes uh, ever. I mean, and you know, the person I went with, he, he was like, the only problem he had with it was that the opening car scene was so epic that (laughs) the rest of the movie was hard to live up to that. Let me ask you this question, Jen, that opening car scene is great. We get the opening credits and then we get this scene where baby is walking through the streets of Atlanta in what essentially is almost like a Fat Boy Slim video, it kind of reminded me of the 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 Chris Walken Fat Boy Slim video. There was no dancing. I mean, like there kind of was a little bit of dancing, but it was just kind of so whimsical that as you go by, you see some of the words to the to the songs that were being played on, kind of graffitied on the walls. There's it looks like a long tracking shot. I don't think it actually was a tracking shot, but it looked like one. It was almost like, as you said, this whole movie is kind of a a music video. But to go from that opening car chase to the opening credits to that kind of whimsical, silly, avant-garde music video, I thought that really set up the film well to let people know what they could expect for the rest of the hour and a half or whatever it was. I actually do think that was a a long take. Do you really think it was? I think he had talked about that on an, in an interview and like how everything had to be oh. timed perfectly. Cause that's uh, just so, that, that's so ridiculous. It, it ends, it ends when he walks in the coffee shop. That's when the camera shot stops. Yeah. If that's one. Or no, that it doesn't. Actually... It, it, it's when he gets back to the um, headquarters because it, it keeps going in the coffee shop. Wow. If that actually is one long shot, not pulling the 
Birdman trick of just making it look like it's one long shot. That's impressive because that's a really difficult thing to walk around the streets of actual Atlanta and try to get that all to work because there are so many people that have to be doing that. So props to Edgar uh, and his whole crew if that was actually a legit tracking shot because that was super impressive. All right, Jen, so leaving kind of the action films of the summer, which is really what summer movies are really all about, and going into one that has not had the box office success of those other three films yet, but is getting so much critical praise. And I'm excited because I think, fingers crossed, this weekend that we're recording is its last quote-unquote test weekend. And if it does well, if the final results do well, it could open in wide release next weekend. And that is the movie The Big Sick. This is written by uh, Kumail Nanjiani and his wife, Emily V. Gordon. Kumail, I mean, people, a lot of people know him. He's on a lot of podcasts all the time, but he was also on the TV show um, Silicon Valley. His wife, Emily, is a writer, unfortunately, no longer employed since she wrote for the Carmichael show, and that's been canceled, unfortunately. Uh, but this is a, a film about their real-life courtship. Dives into the fact that Kumail comes from a very conservative Pakistani Muslim family. Emily is a white girl, not Muslim. But then the main crux of the film is that during their courtship, she gets really sick and has to be put in a medically induced coma for doctors to be able to figure out what is wrong with her. Kumail plays himself. One of my favorite actresses, Zoe Kazan, plays Emily. And uh, Jen, I think... If I can find my phone here, I saw this. Uh, this is Sunday. This is Sunday. I saw this on Friday. It was on vacation. I went and saw it in the afternoon. And this is my text to you. I'm going to read it. Um, prepare for profanity if you've got kids listening. The big sick ellipsis. Fuck. Like, it's so good. It just kills you. That is all accurate. It was... I hate using the term romantic comedy, but it's the best written romantic comedy I've, I've seen maybe ever. And I think it has a lot to do with that. It actually happened. And so I think there was an, an interview with Camille and Emily, and they said we, they don't say at the beginning this is based on a true story because no one would believe you if you said it was fiction. Like, it's crazy enough where you have to believe this actually happened. Yeah, I mean, it's it's such a crazy story. The things they go through, and I heard um, an interview with with Zoe Kazan on um, off camera with Sam Jones podcast, which is also a TV show on Directv, and she talks about the fact that you know it's a little weird because Kumail is playing himself, going through some of the best and worst moments of his life opposite an actress playing his wife that is not actually his wife. So it's really you know kind of a weird construct from an acting perspective but what i think that does is that just leads to some really just natural chemistry between the two some natural i don't know if if authenticity is the right word but there's just something that this is a sat word effervescent about the scenes with their you know kind of dating and, and and everything and it's just so it just makes you feel so good and then when you see emily's character get sick it really is a gut punch I agree. And, and Camille even said in writing it and in filming it, they both remembered things that it, they hadn't remembered. You know, all of these things, all these emotions and all these reactions were coming up like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. 
so, you know, for him to go through it again with her, oh. you know, actors playing her parents, I mean, that's, that's a feat of strength, you know, and even for Emily to sit on the sidelines and watch and to write and to be like, oh my God, is that really what happened? Yeah. <laughs> like that had to be a giant therapy session considering she's a therapist. I'm sure it was very healthy for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you mentioned her parents, uh, Emily's parents in the film are played by Ray Romano and Holly Hunter. I mean, can we talk about Ray Romano as an like, where did they? I mean, yes, everybody loves Raymond, whatever. And then all of a sudden he showed up on Parenthood and he's like a pretty good actor, but he's like a like a valid actor. Well, I think you're also there is one show that you're missing. A lot of people really liked it. It was on TBS for two, three years called Men of a Certain Age, where I think he showed a lot more depth than people anticipated. Um, I never watched it and neither did you, it sounds like. But I think that's a, uh, uh, you know, I think there were some early hints of that. But what him and Holly Hunter do in this film, I, I just, it's heartbreaking. I mean, obviously, as we said, Emily and Camille wrote this movie, so everything turns out right. But there are some things in that movie where it just, it breaks your heart. Oh my God! When Holly Hunter touches his face towards the end, I I thought I would, my heart my heart was going to explode. Like you just felt this genuine compassion between these two people. And Camille even says like, "We just went through this unbelievable thing, and I may never see you again." And she's like, "I hope not." And that's it. <laughs> like it's just heart wrenching. I went to the comedy tour of this movie for my birthday. Explain what that is. What they what they did for the kind of the. Camille is a very um, successful stand-up comedian, even if you don't know the name, you will. And a lot of the people in this movie are comedians as well. So to promote the movie and kind of fundraise for it, they did a comedy tour in certain cities around the country where they did a night of stand-up. So they were in Los Angeles the, the night of my birthday, coincidentally, and I got to go. And Kurt Branholer did a set, and he plays um, Camille's roommate, and he's wonderful. Uh, Bo Burnham and A.D. Brandt were there. They did not perform. Ray Romano performed. And again, you know, you just have this perception of him as Ray Barone. But man, is he a good comedian. He just brought the house down. And he was making fun of his teenage sons the whole time about how stupid they are. And then at the end of his set, he introduces them. They were sitting in the front row. <laughs> it's just like, That's funny. it was so great. And then Judd Apatow did like an hour and he's pretty great as a stand-up. Who knew? Yeah. Judd Apatow, Camille, Judd, just so everyone knows, Judd Apatow is one of the producers on the film. And Camille finished the night as the, uh, you know, the final act. And Emily was the MC the whole time. And then at the end, they brought up the whole cast, Zoe, Holly. Um, everybody came out and did a Q&A for an hour. So... It was awesome. It was a great night. And all of those people that I mentioned are fantastic comedians. If you get a chance to watch, Bo Burnham is one of the comedians he's friends with that he decides to move to New York with. And his special. And A.D. Bryant from SNL. Yeah. But his specials on Netflix are epic if you ever get a chance. Yeah. Very cool. I, I wish I could have seen that. I wish I could have done that here because I definitely would have gone. Um, I do also want to mention that. Broadway regular and former Yitzhak in uh, Hedwig and the Angry Inch, Rebecca Naomi Jones, plays Zoe Kazan's best friend. We don't see too much of her, but she's in there. And, and I do want to shout out Zoe Kazan because I think that's a thankless part considering you spend half the movie in a coma, in a hospital bed with things stuck down your throat. But there's just something about her that I've always loved on screen. I saw her first, ironically, in another one of these movies that's like, this is like a new age romantic comedy that subverts all the cliches of romantic comedies. She did a movie called 
depending on what country you were in, either the F word or what if. She starred opposite Daniel Radcliffe and it was very much the same thing. It's, it feels like a romantic comedy in a lot of places, but they take different turns um, from where you think romantic comedies are going to go. And she's just a very, very charismatic figure. I, I kept feeling like I wanted Emily to wake up because one, I wanted her to be okay. But two, I also wanted to see more from Zoe. So I, she's a, an actress. She's a playwright. Um, she's a film writer. Um, she's got a new play that's coming to Lincoln Center off Broadway this season. She also comes from a line of film writers and her grandfather's one of the greatest directors of all time, Elia Kazan. But I really like her and, and I, I think she added a lot to this part that a lot of other actresses might have just tried to play Emily. I felt like Zoe brought a lot of really interesting twists to it on her own. I also wanted to say uh, the guy that plays Komail's father in the movie is one of the biggest actors in, and I don't remember the country. It's, I think it's India. Is it India or Pakistan? Uh, they're originally from Pakistan, but the actor is from India. Okay, so he's one of the biggest actors in India, and Kumail's real father insisted that they get this guy to play him. Like, it was his only request for the movie. And uh, when they started doing press for The Big Sick, they they asked this man to do press with them, and he had already made 15 more movies. And Kumail's like, oh, oh. well, let's not disrupt your, your shooting schedule. But nice. it was very funny. He's a guy that people have seen a lot of. He was... Uh, he was in Bend It Like Beckham. He was in uh, Silver Lining Playbook. Um, he's somebody who's done a decent amount of American films, but is very much um, a, a huge star. As I'm looking at his Wikipedia page, a pretty big star over in uh, India. And even though, like, this is a true story, and, and I think going into it knowing that everything's okay uh, brings a different level to it because... You know, you're not focused on the drama, like, will she or won't she? Like, you know, everything's going to be okay, but you get to focus on the actual thing that happened while she wasn't. And I think they did a really great representation of that situation where you have to do something, even though you know it's going to be awkward and awful, you just have to do it. And Kamel, yes, he's playing himself, but I thought he did a great job in like, I do not want to be here, but there's nowhere else I can be. And um, I just I loved the way they represented that as well as when she woke up and was not jumping back into his arms. And like, you know, she had to she had to heal. She had to recover and like figure out like that it was okay to be happy again. It was okay to live again. And I know that that happened in real life, but I thought that that was very real (laughs) that they showed that, you know, it wasn't just a happy ending right away. Like they had to do some time apart. Well, and but basically without spoiling too much, they break up like a week before she gets so sick, she has to be put into a coma. And Kumail goes through this huge, heart-wrenching process with her parents while she's in a coma. He has changed and he has grown and he has seen that the reasons they broke up were very much on him being selfish. And he's come to realize what was really important to him while she's been unconscious. And I thought that's a really good point, Jen, that one, she wasn't there because she didn't have that time to go through all of that with him. But two, you're right. I think the fact that I knew that she was okay and that she ended up, it allowed me to kind of really feel the emotions that the characters are going through. Because if I think if I didn't know whether she made it or not, I don't know that I could have really embraced those because I think I would have been too wrapped up in the concern over whether or not she pulled through. Yeah. And something you just said, 
you know, like that's a good point. Like she was, we saw his evolution of realizing the mistake he had made and, you know, that he really did love her, but she wasn't there for that. Like she was there, but the last thing she remembers is him dumping her. So when she wakes up, she's like, what, what are you doing here? So even though we've been on his journey with him, she has had no part of that. So she had to get there on her own. They just did. I just thought they did a really great job and shout out to Michael Showalter, the director of it. Uh, an alumni alumnus of wet hot American summer in the state. Some of my favorite group of guys, he's really becoming a great director in his own right. So Jenna, if I'm reading between the lines here of these four movies, um, take out the implications of seeing the independent film and how it can do. If you're just recommending one movie to an average person, not taking into account whether they love superhero movies or not, if you're there to saying, which of these four movies should I go see? Is it a safe assumption that you and I, because I'm putting myself in this, would we both say the big sick? I think that's the safest bet. I don't. I think Wonder Woman and Spider Man were great, but they are movies for people who are fans of superheroes. They're not something like you would go and be like, you know, that was pretty fun. The big sick, I think, has something for everyone. And I rec my sister, who's a hallmark obsessive romantic comedy guru, <laughs> said, you will love this movie and your husband will love this movie because there's so much comedy and so much other things in it that he will really enjoy it, even though there's like a romantic aspect to it. Yeah, that's a really good point. I, I, th I think it's a great film. And I'm going to say this now, Jen, on July 9th, I don't think that this is going to get any Academy Award nominations or anything but I hope that it gets some Golden Globe or or Screen Actors Guild or, you know, Writers Guild of America or some other type of award recognition. Because why I'll be shocked if it breaks through on like a best picture thing uh, with the Academy Awards. I think this deserves some award recognition um, from some of those other organizations that are generally willing to take risks. I agree. I, I hope it gets some shout outs for writing and I wouldn't toss my nose up at a, at a, at a, at a nod for Holly Hunter or Zoe Kazan. I would love, I no look, I would totally love that. I just, I've been burned by the Academy so many times that I don't want to uh, get my hopes up on any of those things, but, but well, I'm not talking about the Academy. I mean like with the foreign oh. press or, or Oh yeah. 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 And, and I think, I think it probably has a pretty decent shot at a comedy nomination for golden globes. Fingers crossed when those come out in another six months or so. I have to tell you something, babe. I've been dating this girl. She's white. A white girl? Hey, you can't look like you and me a white girl. It's okay. We hate terrorists. I wonder who that could be. I'm guessing it's a young, single Pakistani woman. This is Zubeda. For your files? Your X-Files? That's your favorite show, huh? <laughs> the truth is out there. <laughs> Are you judging Pakistan's next top model? You know how we have arranged marriage in my culture? stupid. Can you imagine a world in which we end up together? I don't know. I'm looking for Emily Gardner. She was checked in tonight. There's an infection. We put her in a medically induced coma. Coma. You should call her family. Thank you, Kamala. We're gonna handle things from here. I think I'm just gonna wait anyway. You guys broke up. I'm not sure why you're here. I'm just gonna stay for a second. Is this seat? Okay. that lady still looking at me so, uh, all right jen per the usual we're going to close out this episode with a little show and tell where you and i auditorily show everybody something and then tell them why it is important or entertaining i guess it doesn't have to be important but entertaining as well 
Jen, as I just said before we uh, jumped back into recording, this is the first time that I think there's a chance and I have a hint that we might be doing the same thing. That's never happened in our show and tell history. I wouldn't bet on it, but I think there's a decent chance. So, Jen, why don't you go ahead and go first and we can uh, assess whether or not we doubled up here. Oh, I'll be surprised because I was going to start by saying this is something I'm not going to recommend to you. Oh, then definitely not. Well, I don't know. I just wanted, like I said, you know, we've been so lucky with summer movies this summer. I just wanted something brainless to watch this morning. So I watched a new movie on HBO. Oh. And it was as brainless and stupid as I wanted it to be because I worship The Lonely Island and Andy Samberg. And their new movie... Tour de Pharmacy premiered last night, and it is a mockumentary of the Tour de France with commentary by real people. Unfortunately, Joe Buck makes an appearance, but what are you going to do? It's made up for by the fact that Lance Armstrong is making fun of everybody for doping. Ugh. Yes, they went there. Oh, that's the <laughs> They worst. went there. It bugs me that he's in it. Like it, it really makes my skin crawl that he's in that movie. Wonderful. Um, he's he's not redeemed, you know. Like, but. There's really nothing he can do at this point, so why not? And um, he's a terrible the, human being. Like he's just a terrible human being. So is Joe Buck. But you no, know, stop. You but he cannot, has to deal with it. You cannot like Joe Buck. Whatever. We we don't need to argue about Lance Armstrong. He's just a bad human being. He's tried to ruin people's lives just to cover up his own cheating ass. True. Uh, however, hilarious in this film. <laughs> um, basically, it comes down to this fictional account of the 1982 Tour de France where everyone was so doped up that they were just losing their minds. And it everyone uh, almost drops out except for the, the last five people it includes Orlando Bloom, who literally dies in the middle of the race and no one notices. <laughs> and David Diggs, which hi, uh, Andy Samberg, John Cena. And it's it's so stupid. It's so brainless. And you will hate every second of it. So I recommend it because it's just brainless. And I love those guys. But you won't like it. Well, I'm going to surprise you. I haven't watched it yet. But I'm, I'm looking forward to it because they did something very similar back in 2015 called Seven Days in Hell that chronicled an epic, long Wimbledon tennis match. It was between a character played by Andy Samberg and another character played by Kit Harrington. Um, and I actually really enjoyed that. They, again, made it like it was a documentary about this super long tennis match, had real tennis announcers involved, and John McEnroe was in it and stuff. So I really, I, I did like that. So I was looking forward to Tour to Pharmacy to see what it's like. And um, I, I don't know that I have it taped on DVR yet, but I'm going to, I'm going to check it out, especially with Davy Diggs in it. So that's kind of cool. I don't know how many black cyclists there were back in 1982 but actually good. the point um he oh, okay. plays a character called uh slim robinson who is the fictional nephew of jackie robinson and he wanted to be the first black something so he got all the way down to cycling nice okay That's um funny. also i another episode of the nerdist to recommend is andy sandberg and he talks about this as well as other projects and he said he does want to make this a recurring thing on hbo where they just do a mockumentary of random sports every year well, Jen, our, our episode finally came out of movies that make us laugh um, last week, and we talked about your number one, spoiler alert, but listen to that one before you listen to this one, I guess, is a mockumentary, one of the Christopher Guest mockumentaries. Th that's just such a funny genre that doesn't get done enough, probably because it's really hard, but when really smart, funny people like Christopher Guest, like Andy Samberg, do that and do it well, 
there are very few things that are as funny as that. I do love a good mockumentary, you know, anywhere from Arrested Development down to like actual mockumentaries like this. So it is one of my favorite genres. Yeah. You throw in things like The Office and Trial and Error, which are, you know, straddle the line of that. But um, but very cool. Nearly every writer was on drugs. Uh, everyone was cheating, except for me. How do you beat a man on drugs if you're not on drugs? Wait, did you just admit to being on drugs? Here we go. Just when you think it's over, that some shit is about to go down. Are, are you sure you can't see me? If you're worried about it, we can give you some clothes to change your outline or something. Sure. But it's, I think I'm a lot more recognizable with the helmet on. Definitely not what I was going to recommend, Jen. <laughs> I was going to go more with the weird viral video of the week. And... Um, I'm sure you've seen this because it was all over Twitter, which is another reason why I thought you might have seen it. But (laughs) uh, last week was released a mashup between one of the biggest songs um, of my early teen, preteen years and one of the biggest shows of my toddler years. That is because it was a mashup of the Beastie Boys uh, 1994 song Sabotage. With Big Bird and Sesame Street. Jen, have you seen this? I have, yes. By your voice there, it didn't seem that you enjoyed it as much as I did. I don't know if anyone enjoyed it as much as you did. What? This is great. This is hilarious. It is. It's great. She's judging me. She's judging me right now. I'm not. I don't know know what you want me to do. You just sound like you're you're hating on me for liking this. My God, yes. It was so funny. I hate you. Um... (laughs) But it's very funny. Uh, it's just one of those things where you've got Gordon and Maria in the background, you know, in the video. It's just very fun. It just, you know, Jen, we talked about how rough things are in the world, reading about collusion and people making a disgrace of our country. But just to watch Big Bird sing Sabotage made me happy. So hopefully uh, for those folks um, that are interested in this, I'll put the link in the show notes and in the article on Broadway World. So if you want to see this, check it out because it brought a smile to my face. Thanks for listening to this episode of Broadway World, Something like a Pop Podcast. You can find all of our episodes on broadwayworld.com, and you can get new episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. So make sure to subscribe, download, and share the gift that is Something Like It Pop. Also, do our egos a favor and follow the show on Twitter at SLIP Podcast. And go over to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review us, please. And thank you. We invite you to get in touch with Jen and me and let us know your thoughts on the shows, movies, and topics that we discuss every week. Jen and I will be back next week when I pay off a bet and we discuss the miniseries that launched the 2004 series Battlestar Galactica. 
So until next time, we'll see you around the Broadway world. woman with a half face. What was her name? Oh, Jesus. She was scary as hell. I say Godot, you say Godot. He's uh, pretty amazing. And the other thing I wanted to mention was um, I forgot. (laughs) (laughs) Okay.